Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dutch Schultz lay in a hospital clutching his stomach, face sticky with sweat. The 33-year-old notorious gangster gasped for breath, the blood-drenched bandages straining against his gut. Schultz had taken countless other lives, and now his own sat on a knife's edge. A man sat next to Schultz, his trembling hands perched on a small typewriter, typing out the date on the blank page, October 23rd, 1935. The stenographer had been hired by the court to record whatever Schultz said. Police Sergeant Luke Conlon paced before them, taking a long drag from a cigarette. He checked his pocket watch. It was four o'clock. He glanced at the detective sitting to the side reading a newspaper. Suddenly, Schultz cried out. Sergeant Conlon threw his cigarette down and sat beside Schultz. He was eager to learn who'd shot the crime boss and, more importantly, why. He asked Schultz what had happened, but the injured man wasn't in his right mind. He ranted about communists and fascists and called for his mother. When the police asked him about the shooting, he gave conflicting answers. First, he said the boss shot him. Then he said he didn't even know. And finally, he slurred a name that the stenographer couldn't make out. Conlon asked, what did they shoot you for? Schultz replied, five million dollars. The sergeant mulled over those words. He'd heard rumors of Schultz's hidden treasure. Conlon knew that Schultz was the only living person who knew where the fortune was. And if he died without divulging the truth, his wealth would be lost forever. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we're examining the lost treasure of Dutch Schultz, a notorious Prohibition-era gangster in the New York area. According to rumors, when the Internal Revenue Service charged Schultz with tax evasion, he stashed millions of dollars worth of assets. He buried them somewhere near Phoenicia, New York, in the Catskill Mountains. But to this day, no one has been able to locate Schultz's treasure. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Dutch Schultz was one of the most powerful gangsters of Prohibition-era New York. 
He was infamous for his brutal murders, his extensive criminal empire, and his legal savvy that allowed him to flout authority. But today, he's equally famous for his massive wealth that vanished before his death. Allegedly, Schultz hid millions of dollars worth of cash and bonds somewhere in the Catskill Mountains. He planned to reclaim his fortune after a tax evasion trial, but never got the chance. In 1935, he died without telling any survivors where the stash was hidden. Treasure hunters promote two major theories to explain what happened to Schultz's wealth. The first is that Schultz's lockbox is still somewhere in the Catskills, probably near the small town of Phoenicia, New York. The second theory is that Schultz's associates or enemies recovered the treasure long before Schultz's loot became a local legend. By the time any fortune hunters thought to go looking for it, Schultz's stash was already long gone. But we can't analyze the missing treasure without discussing the man behind it. And Dutch Schultz's legendary criminal empire began with an ordinary arrest. On a quiet night in 1919, the New York police caught a teenager breaking into an apartment in the Bronx. 17-year-old Arthur Flegenheimer was the son of German-Jewish immigrants, and he had a troubled life at home. Arthur's difficulties began when he was 14 years old and his father vanished. Arthur dropped out of school to provide for his mother and little sister. But even though he'd held down good jobs, the angry teen gravitated toward trouble. He worked at a nightclub owned by a small-time gangster. It wasn't long before he made friends with the wrong crowd. Arthur and his associates started to hold up craps games, then moved on to breaking into apartments. During one of those burglaries, Arthur got caught. Arthur was sentenced to 15 months at Blackwell's Island on the East River. The guards found him violent and impossible to discipline, so they transferred him to a work farm upstate. But Arthur's behavior didn't improve. He tried to escape the camp and failed, earning two additional months of incarceration. Nearly a year and a half in prison did little to deter the fledgling criminal. In fact, during his time upstate, Congress passed the Volstead Act, which made the purchase or consumption of alcohol illegal in the United States. So when Arthur was released on December 8, 1920, there was a whole new criminal world waiting for him. His low-life friends and associates welcomed him back to freedom with open arms. They nicknamed him Dutch Schultz after another brutal gangster because of his temper. With his new identity and lease on life, Schultz landed a job driving trucks for the booze trade. His employer was established mobster Arthur Rothstein, known as The Brain. A year earlier, he'd bribed the White Sox to throw the 1919 World Series and made millions gambling on the fix. But Schultz wasn't content being a driver. He eventually became a bouncer at a speakeasy in the Bronx run by small-time gangster Joey Noe. Noe saw that Schultz had a hair-trigger temper and a keen, calculating mind. He liked Schultz and took him under his wing. Within a year, Noe let Schultz buy a stake in the club, and the two became business partners. 
Noe and Schultz also bought shares in a different illegal speakeasy and earned over $100,000 a year, a huge sum considering they were in the midst of the Great Depression. With their profits, they expanded their operation and eventually gained a foothold in liquor production. Instead of buying alcohol from large distributors, they now had access to their own. And they made it clear that every speakeasy in the Bronx would buy from them or else. A bar owner named Joe Rock refused to acquire alcohol from the partners, so Schultz sent his thugs after him. Led by Schultz's personal bodyguard, Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz, they kidnapped the businessman. While they waited on a ransom payment, the thugs hung Rock from meat hooks by his thumbs. Then the bruisers reportedly smeared his eyes with bandages infected with gonorrhea, blinding the poor man. Rock's family paid $35,000 for his return, and he never opposed Schultz ever again. Such vicious and bloodthirsty tactics helped Schultz rise through the ranks of organized crime. Thanks to his stranglehold over the Bronx's alcohol supply, he earned the nickname the Baron of Beer. Schultz and Noe eventually oversaw a full-fledged syndicate and headed the strongest Jewish gang in New York City. By the late 1920s, Schultz's mafia raked in tens of millions of dollars a year. Their reach rivaled that of New York's infamous Five Families, the five Italian crime families that controlled most of the East Coast. Other gangsters even referred to Schultz and the Mafia as the Big Six. But as the 20s wore on, rumors suggested that prohibition was coming to an end. Schultz needed to diversify his criminal income, so his gang began to run protection rackets, where businesses paid a fee so as not to be vulnerable to attack. However, it was a scam. The only protection they needed was from Schultz's men. If business owners didn't pay up, Schultz's associates threatened them or destroyed their property. And the intimidation tactics worked. The protection racket became another source of Schultz's wealth. Schultz was nothing if not ambitious. In the early 30s, he expanded his operations from the Bronx into Harlem in Upper Manhattan. He collected millions by muscling in on black and Hispanic-run illegal lotteries. He violently ousted black businesses and got into a bitter conflict with those who stood up to him, like infamous criminals Ellsworth Raymond Bumpy Johnson and Stephanie St. Clair. Schultz's expansion into Harlem rattled his Italian competitors, especially 31-year-old Jack Legs Diamond, an associate of Schultz's former employer, Arnold Rothstein. In October 1928, Schultz's mentor and business partner, Joey Noe, was killed in a drive-by shooting on West 54th Street. Schultz believed that Diamond had ordered the hit on Noe. A month later, Diamond's boss, Arnold Rothstein, was shot at a poker game. Rothstein's murder was never solved. But famous New York crime reporter Paul San theorized that Schultz had Rothstein killed in retaliation for Noe's death, one mentor for another. As other mobsters rose and fell, Schultz continued to gain power and wealth. 
In the early 30s, he was at the height of his power with operations in Upper Manhattan, the Bronx, and New Jersey. But with that much reach, he encountered a new nemesis, New York Special Prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. Dewey was a rising star in the New York government, and he had one goal, stop the spread of organized crime. His prime target was one of the most violent criminals in all of New York, Dutch Schultz himself. Dewey's strategy was simple. He'd bring down Schultz using the same tactic that the FBI used to successfully nail Al Capone, income tax evasion charges. In 1933, the state of New York indicted 31-year-old Schultz. They alleged that between 1929 and 1931, Schultz withheld $92,000 in income tax. This was equivalent to around $1.5 million today. These charges brought a minimum fine of $40,000, worth over $600,000 today, and a prison sentence of 16 years, which would end Schultz's criminal reign. Rather than risk arrest and a guilty verdict, Schultz went into hiding. He needed time to think of a plan and secure his finances. Around that time, he may also have left himself a nest egg. The story goes that Schultz was worried that the government would seize his assets if he was convicted. Or maybe other mob bosses would rob his businesses while Schultz was locked away and unable to retaliate. In the 30s, raids on mob property were common. For example, when Al Capone stood trial, authorities swept his homes across the country. Schultz knew he couldn't store his fortune in a bank or hide it in a club or speakeasy. He needed to put it somewhere that nobody would look. So one day, the gangster summoned his most trusted lieutenants to a secret room in Bridgeport, Connecticut. There, the men gathered most of Schultz's personal wealth and sealed it in a strongbox. Stories suggest that it held up to $7 million worth of cash, bonds, gold, and jewelry. The equivalent of roughly $130 million today. Once all the loot was assembled, Schultz and his loyal bodyguard, Bernard Lulu Rosencrantz, traveled to upstate New York and buried the safe. Once it was covered, Schultz carved an X into a nearby tree. According to some accounts, Rosencrantz also drew a map so they could return for the treasure once Schultz's legal troubles were over. Finally, Schultz swore his accomplice to secrecy. But Rosencrantz broke his vow in a matter of weeks. He told one of Schultz's lieutenants, Martin Little Marty Crompier. Rosencrantz even redrew the map from memory. Perhaps the pair plotted to seize the money for themselves if Schultz landed in prison. Even as his underlings gossiped about the secret cash, Schultz's legal troubles worsened. In 1934, FBI head J. Edgar Hoover named 32-year-old Dutch Schultz public enemy number one. This meant that the federal government was now helping state authorities find Schultz and bring him to justice. With his new infamy, Schultz realized that it was only a matter of time before authorities caught him. On November 28, 1934, he surrendered to the police. But this wasn't the end for Dutch Schultz. He still had his safe 
and he was confident that he could beat the system. But Schultz's arrogance would soon spell his downfall. Up next, Schultz's empire collapses. And now, back to the story. The 1920s and 30s were a golden age for organized crime, and few mob bosses were as cruel and ruthless as Dutch Schultz. When New York special prosecutor Thomas Dewey set his sights on the gangster, Schultz panicked. With the help of his bodyguard, Lulu Rosencrantz, Schultz supposedly buried a cash worth $7 million in the Catskills, where no government agents could find it. With his private fortune secure, the 32-year-old Schultz turned himself in to state officers in Albany, New York. And the real drama began. The government had an easy case. Schultz was a notorious figure, and they had plenty of testimony and evidence to link him to his various illegal activities. But the prosecution didn't have his actual business ledger, and the trial quickly got away from them. Schultz was known as a bootlegger, racketeer, and murderer, but somehow the case resulted in a hung jury on April 27, 1935. Many suspect that Schultz's associates influenced members of the jury with bribes or threats, but prosecutors never proved any tampering. Whatever the case, the millionaire gangster wasn't convicted. But Schultz wasn't off the hook yet. He had to stand for a retrial. Before Schultz could face the court again, his counsel pulled a surprising stunt. They suggested the hung jury was because the gangster had too many allies in the city. Therefore, the prosecutors should take the trial upstate, where impartial justice might prevail. The court agreed and set a date for a second trial, July 21, 1935. And this time, it was held in the small town of Malone, New York. Schultz and his crew traveled to Malone well in advance of the trial. Then they set to work on a massive public relations campaign. Schultz donated to local charities. He took people out to dinner. The notorious murderer frequently bought rounds of drinks for random citizens. He went to see the local baseball team with Malone's mayor. Inevitably, the people of Malone formed a very different opinion of Schultz. Whereas city jurors had first and second-hand knowledge of the mobster's brutality, Jurors in Malone had no such preconceptions. Dutch Schultz had effectively rebranded himself as an honest businessman being unfairly prosecuted by a power-crazed government. His generous philanthropy and charm worked. In Schultz's second trial, the jury found him not guilty due to lack of evidence. There were plenty of statements from undercover informants and receipts demonstrating his ill-gotten wealth but the appeased citizens of Malone didn't buy the government's case. And though he emerged victorious, Schultz wasn't a forgiving man. As soon as his trial ended, he plotted the downfall of the man who had put him on trial in the first place, New York Special Prosecutor Thomas Dewey. Once he was acquitted, Schultz set all his might against the prosecutor. 
Because he wasn't allowed back in New York, he moved to Newark, New Jersey to start planning Dewey's downfall. First, he converted to Catholicism. According to Selwyn Rabb, an investigative journalist for the New York Times, Schultz's sudden change of religion was an attempt to appeal to the Italian leadership of a group called the Commission. They were an influential mob council with representatives from the five crime families. They ran the New York Mafia. Since Schultz planned on killing a highly public figure, he needed the commission on his side. As a courtesy, Schultz approached the commission with a plan. He'd already had Dewey tailed. He knew the prosecutor routinely made morning stops at a local pharmacy. Schultz argued that he could easily eliminate his enemy. He just needed the commission's approval. But they refused to hear him out. As far as they were concerned, Dewey's murder would bring the heat down on every mobster in the city. They forbade Schultz from proceeding. But that wasn't the end of it. Schultz was infamous for his brutality and his bullheadedness. The mafiosos on the commission weren't confident that Schultz would abide by their ruling. They needed extra insurance to guarantee his compliance. They struck on October 23, 1945. Dutch Schultz was dining at the Palace Chop House, a restaurant he owned in Newark, New Jersey. He was with his accountant and two bodyguards, including Lulu Rosencrantz, the man who'd accompanied him to bury his treasure. When Schultz went to the bathroom, all hell broke loose. Two hitmen burst into the restaurant. They weren't just any armed goons. They were from Murder Incorporated, the commission's infamous enforcers. They gunned down the three men in the dining room, fatally wounding each of them. Then the assassins cornered Schultz in the bathroom and shot him twice through the gut. The injury would kill him eventually. But first, he was going to suffer. Hours later, Schultz writhed on a hospital bed. In spite of the doctor's best efforts, he was mortally wounded. Newark police officers surrounded him, all desperate to know who'd shot him and whether he'd give up any of his associates. Schultz babbled for hours, often making no sense at all. While he called out for his mother and mumbled to himself, the cops repeatedly asked Schultz why he was shot. Schultz said it was over $5 million. Maybe it was mindless rambling, or maybe Schultz's murder was more complicated than we know. Perhaps the commission didn't merely kill him because of the plot against Prosecutor Dewey. They may have wanted his fortune, too. Nobody knows exactly how much money Schultz hid in the Catskills. Estimates suggest it was worth up to $7 million, but maybe that's an overestimate. Some treasure hunters believe Schultz's deathbed $5 million reference was an allusion to the buried stash. Whatever they meant, the court stenographer transcribed the dying mobster's words. Schultz lapsed into unconsciousness. He died hours later. And nobody was any the wiser about what the $5 million were. Prior to the murder, only three men knew about Schultz's buried treasure. Schultz himself, 
his bodyguard, Lulu Rosencrantz, who died in the same shooting, and Marty Crompier, who Rosencrantz had drawn a map for. And while paramedics rushed Schultz to the hospital, unidentified assassins shot Crompier at a Times Square barbershop. Unlike Dutch and Rosencrantz, Crompier survived the attack. However, he lost the map that Rosencrantz had drawn for him, and he was never able to track down the treasure. But he talked about the missing map and his fruitless searches, and rumors of Schultz's stash grew. Decades later, when Crompier and all the other Prohibition-era gangsters passed away, the story of Schultz's treasure transformed into local folklore. It drew countless fortune hunters to the Catskill Mountains. And this leads us to our first theory, that Schultz and Rosencrantz buried the treasure somewhere near the town of Phoenicia, New York. It still waits there, unclaimed. Schultz didn't have property in Phoenicia, but he was familiar with the area. He'd driven liquor there back when he was a bootlegger. And as Schultz rose to power, Phoenicia apparently became one of his favorite hideaways. He went there often in the warm summer months to escape the heat. There, he could disconnect from his high-stakes life of crime and feel momentarily safe. The problem with this theory is how vague it is. Phoenicia is a tiny town in a remote wilderness. Today, it has a population of around 300 people. It's surrounded by a handful of even smaller towns, and it's a full 60 miles from Albany, New York. Saying the treasure is near Phoenicia is like saying it's somewhere in the woods. Without a map or some kind of marker, a treasure hunter wouldn't know where to start looking. Supposedly, Schultz and Rosencrantz marked the burial site by cutting an X into a nearby tree. But this doesn't narrow down the search. The Catskills are nearly 6,000 square miles and have countless trees, so searching one by one is a fool's errand. In short, there's little to go by. But the vague clues helped the small town of Phoenicia become a mecca for treasure hunters after Schultz's death. Brian Palmiter, a Vermont property developer, believed that Schultz gave clues to the authorities on his deathbed. He never offered an explanation for why Schultz would point his enemies toward his treasure. Perhaps he didn't realize who he was speaking to as he lay dying. Or maybe he wanted the police to find the wealth before it could fall into the hands of his murderers, the commission. Palmiter pointed to a few of Schultz's last words, don't let Satan draw you too fast. A local Phoenicia campground sits near a rocky shelf called the Devil's Face. Palmiter theorized that when Schultz mentioned Satan, he was speaking in code, suggesting that his trove was buried somewhere near the Devil's Face. Armed with only this assumption, Palmiter spent days searching every inch of the Devil's Face with a metal detector. He traversed at least a square mile full of dense trees, rocks, and streams. Even with a carefully organized grid search, he didn't find anything. But Palmiter wasn't discouraged. No one knew how deep the loot was buried. Palmiter could have turned up the sensitivity on his metal detector so its signals would penetrate further into the ground. But he'd also get far more false positives 
as it would pick up on small objects like bottle caps. In essence, Palmiter could have walked right over the treasure without realizing it. Even though he hasn't found anything, today Palmiter still believes Schultz's treasure is near the devil's face. But local funeral homeowners Gene Gormley and Mark Wiley disagreed with his theories. In fact, they claimed they had Schultz's lost map. They weren't forthcoming as to where they got it, but even if the map was genuine, it wouldn't do them any good. Their map placed the treasure under Route 28, a thoroughfare that didn't exist in the 30s. If true, the tree that Schultz marked with the X was probably removed during construction, and the treasure was paved over. No one ever formally investigated Gormley and Wiley's claims. It would require digging up the highway. So it's entirely possible that a thin layer of asphalt stands between searchers and a $130 million windfall. However, there was little proof that their map is authentic, especially since the pair refused to tell anyone where they got it from. Maybe it was a lie to drum up business for the small town. Claims like Gormley's and Wiley's drew treasure hunters to Phoenicia. So it made sense that they'd want to keep the legend alive. In lieu of maps or Schultz's last words, others turned to spiritual answers. A local mystic said she found the treasure by dangling a pendulum over a map, but refused to dig it up. She said any treasure from a gangster had bad energy, and she didn't want to get involved with that. Stories like these are commonplace, but they always have the same arc. They start with people searching and end with nothing. People go to Phoenicia guided by rumors, general excitement, and even prophetic dreams. They come equipped with maps of the Catskills, metal detectors, and whatever digging equipment they can carry. And despite all of these vague clues and hundreds of dedicated searchers, no single person has come away with any riches. This leads many to question whether the treasure is near Phoenicia at all. In fact, it's possible that someone retrieved it before anyone thought to look for the missing trove. Up next, we'll examine whether a criminal or Mother Nature might have taken Schultz's secret loot. And now, back to the story. When infamous gangster Dutch Schultz was gunned down on October 23, 1935, he left behind a tantalizing rumor. The story that he'd buried a cache of treasure in the Catskills far away from prying eyes. Yet after decades of searching, no treasure hunter has ever found the legendary stash. Because of this, a counter-theory has arisen. In the years after Dutch Schultz hid the loot, it was either lost to time or stolen by rival gangsters. Gary Bennett, a treasure hunter from Massachusetts, told the Los Angeles Times that he believed it had been gone for decades. He came to this conclusion after he made half a dozen trips to look for Schultz's loot and found nothing. Many other treasure hunters spent decades looking in vain. Discouraged, they posted some of their theories on online forums. 
They argued that rival gangsters may have acquired the map from the only survivor of the attempted hits, Marty Crompierre. On October 23rd, the very same night that Schultz was shot in New Jersey, Crompierre was gunned down in a Times Square barbershop. Marty Crompierre was one of Dutch Schultz's lieutenants. He knew the business well, and most importantly, he understood Schultz's secrets. Crompierre didn't see who shot him because his back was turned. But the timing suggests that the attempted murder wasn't a coincidence. In fact, many local papers at the time, like the Daily News, believed that mobsters, including those in the commission, were looking to get rid of Schultz's entire operation. And they may have been motivated by Schultz's buried fortune, too. Remember, on his deathbed, Schultz said he was killed for $5 million. If the commission was already dismantling his empire, maybe they also eliminated Schultz and Rosencrantz and stole the treasure map from the injured Crompierre. That way, they could eliminate an unpredictable rival and enrich themselves in one fell swoop. Curiously, so far as the records show, the hitmen didn't make another attempt on Marty Crompierre's life. If their goal was to destroy Schultz's inner circle, they wouldn't have stopped halfway. As its infamous name suggests, Murder Incorporated wasn't a group that left jobs unfinished, meaning the men who shot Crompierre weren't there for his life. They were there for his map. If the commission had successfully located Schultz's ill-gotten gains, they wouldn't have mentioned it to anyone else. And with their wealth and clout, they easily hid the wealth from the public eye. So the treasure disappeared without even a whisper of a rumor about who took it. Or maybe the trove was taken later. After his recovery, Marty Crompierre was instrumental in spreading the rumors of Schultz's treasure. The story reached the ears of other gangsters who were eager to take the cash box for themselves. One of his associates could have pilfered Crompierre's map after the shooting. Then they slipped off to the Catskills and helped themselves to Schultz's treasure. It's unlikely that a civilian found the box. Given how important Schultz's treasure is in Phoenicia, any such find would become an instant headline. Locals always had their eyes peeled. So even if the finder meant to keep it secret, they would have been seen by someone if they stole the treasure after it became a legend. So if someone found the stash, they did so before it became local folklore. However, the Liberty Bonds in Schultz's strongbox were never redeemed. We don't know exactly how much of the treasure was in the form of bonds, but all the stories suggest it was a sizable amount. Perhaps the Mafia discarded the bonds in order to keep a paperless trail. Yet, we've never found any definitive proof that anyone in the mob took the treasure. We don't even know for certain if they ever got their hands on Crompierre's map. And there might be a more natural explanation for what happened to the loot. Documentarian and Schultz treasure hunter Laura Levine suggested that the region near Phoenicia was prone to flooding. Phoenicia is flanked by two rivers and nestled in a valley, meaning that it's located on a floodplain. It's not uncommon for a large storm to blow through. Heavy rains make the banks of the river swell. 
According to the New York Times, the small town had been hit by several hundred-year floods in the last 25 years. These are events that statistically have a one in a hundred chance of happening each year. They should only occur once a century, but Phoenicia had one in 1996, another in 2005, and most recently, a hundred-year flood in 2011. Each time the floods swept through the town, it tore up streets, knocked down trees, and dislodged large boulders. The strength of these torrents could carry a refrigerator downriver. The water easily would have eroded the topsoil. A buried chest could have washed away in heavy rain. If so, it's probably at the bottom of the nearby Ashokan Reservoir. But even that scenario is uncertain because there's simply no proof. After countless searches for Schultz's loot, we still don't have the slightest clue as to its location. The lack of hard evidence or credible sourcing make the mystery almost impossible to solve. It's important to note that Schultz's story of buried treasure is far from unique. Many other notable gangsters have rumors and myths of lost money. Famous Las Vegas gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was rumored to have a Swiss bank account in which he deposited his illegal earnings. And Al Capone supposedly had his own buried treasure. All of these legends have one thing in common. None of them were ever proven. It seems that the stories of treasure becomes larger than the gangsters themselves. And the mythical fortune shaped Schultz's legacy in a similar way to his PR stunt in Malone. With the aid of urban legends, Schultz's legendary loot overshadowed his vile deeds. It's easy to imagine gangsters like Schultz as folk icons rather than who they really were. Ruthless, twisted men who cared little for the lives they destroyed. Maybe someday we'll solve the mystery of his missing treasure. Then we can break Dutch Schultz's mystique and put his misguided legend to rest. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.